0: The Guardian. Developing and deploying a vaccine for a virus that was first genetically sequenced less than a year ago is undoubtedly an awe-inspiring accomplishment. It's taken years of prior research, a deluge of funding and early purchasing from governments around the world, together with thousands of generous and brave volunteers, as well as rolling rapid reviews as data from clinical trials came in. Yet the speed at which such vaccines have been developed has made some people nervous. A lack of trust in governments and pharmaceutical companies has also fed into those concerns about whether the vaccines are safe and what the motivations are behind public vaccination campaigns. While the COVID vaccines have undergone or are currently undergoing rigorous testing and approval processes, in episode one of this two-parter on vaccine hesitancy, We explored what history tells us about the roots of many communities' fears. We also looked at how we can foster trust to help people make informed decisions. But also hoping to influence the vaccine-hesitant is a different group. Those who are against vaccinations entirely, the so-called anti-vaxxers. Originally,
1: it started out way earlier than 2020. You have the electromagnetic hypersensitivity fringe groups. These are the people who claim to be allergic to electromagnetic waves. This group started flagging the dangers of 5G. And this got hooked into coronavirus.
0: I'm Nicola Davis, and this is Science Weekly. Diving into the world of anti-vaccination is not a task done lightly. It's both deep and murky. So I decided to get a guide for this trip. Alex Hearn, The Guardian's technology editor. Alex, hello.
2: Hello. Thank you for having me.
0: Now, Alex, anti-vaccination sentiment is certainly not anything new. Uh, Since the now entirely debunked MMR controversy in 1998, it's been something that's been in the public eye often linked to supposed health scares or, as was the case with MMR, dodgy trials or misinterpreted evidence. But it seems like there's been something of a different issue circulating with COVID vaccines. Since the start of the pandemic, the internet has been somewhat awash with conspiracy theories about COVID-19, hasn't it?
2: Yes. So right from the beginning, back in not even March, earlier, you know, January this year, uh, there was just a wave of theories and conspiracies about COVID-19, basically due to the enormous information void we had at the beginning of this year. You know, this was the biggest story of many people's lives without question. And yet there was so little that we actually knew, so little hard information that we had about COVID-19. It's, it's hard enough to deal with conspiracy theories when there is an unambiguously true answer. When there isn't, when you have something like COVID-19 in March where even the question of how do you catch this mysterious virus was fairly open, that's an enormous void into which bad information and eventually deliberately false information can flow with ease. I decided to speak to an expert about this, Joe Ondrak, a senior researcher at a company called Logically.ai, who developed tools for fact checking and do investigative reports on disinformation. And he made the point that COVID anti-vaccination is very different from normal anti-vax movements.
1: One of the things that is key around considering the current state of things with the coronavirus vaccine is that this isn't anti-vax. This isn't to do with the anti-vaccine movement as in vaccines cause autism, although there are people who are now sort of co-opting that and trying to steer the conversation that way. What this is, is anti-COVID vax, which stems from the belief that either the pandemic isn't real or there, there are things amiss with what this vaccine purports to treat rather than the vaccine itself. One of the things we've noticed doing um, our investigation is that the rallying cry for a lot of uh, people who believe this is, I'm not an anti-vaxxer, but on the the milder end of things, you've got people talking about ideas that the vaccine has been rushed through, that it's not been properly tested, and that uh, it's it's more to do with money and big pharma than it is to do with uh, science and uh, generally helping the population. Um, and the, these people often say, oh, give it a few months um, when more tests have been done, or you know, give it a year or so, maybe I'll take the vaccine then, but certainly not now. And then it goes further along to people um, citing uh, decontextualized documents um, and people who are, who seem to be coming out of the woodwork, um, professing their uh, credentials and uh, cashing in on podcasts, um, saying how this vaccine is controlled sterilization, um, that it's it's a depopulate uh, depopulation um, scheme by the the world governments and the Bill Gates Foundation, um, and then obviously on on the far other end of the scale, you get people talking about five G and the fact that there's there's a microchip in the vaccine that's going to track them everywhere.
2: What do you think it is about COVID nineteen in particular that's meant that this conspiratorial thinking has has gone so wide and drawn in so many people who? previously wouldn't have been described and certainly wouldn't have described themselves as conspiracy theorists.
1: It's a mix of a few things. You've got environmental and genuine physical factors here. You can't ignore the fact that due to lockdown measures, more people have been spending more time online. You know, if you spend enough time on a screen absent-minded and clicking, eventually you're going to get to uh, some particularly out there things, especially if other people on your Facebook news feeds are already believing this stuff. On top of this as well, um, COVID-19 has been a... I I hate using the term unprecedented because it was used so much earlier in the year, Um, but it has been an unprecedented event. We haven't got a framework to deal with this in a rational and comforting sense. So it's quite reasonable that people are going to seek out any narrative that purports to explain this and, and at least give it a fair shake, especially since the other option is that the world is quite chaotic, and this world-changing, emergent event just sort of happened.
0: Alex, coming off the back of what Joe was saying there, it sounds as if one of the reasons that so many conspiracy theories have emerged around COVID-19 is because people were looking for information and ways to explain this very complicated, global and difficult event why do you think COVID-19 has been wrapped up in so many bizarre theories?
2: As well as that information void that I was talking about earlier, it's fair to say that the information environment of March 2020 was not perfect for countering misinformation. We have had five years plus of growing anti-expert sentiment around the world. You can see that in things like Michael Gove's comment around Brexit. We've had enough of experts and the entirety of Donald Trump's term as president. And then you can also see that the information environment created by social media and by companies like Facebook and Instagram and Twitter don't provide much help for people who want to ensure that the general public only listens to credible sources of information. I asked Joe to put all of that in context for me.
1: We have plenty of different metrics which we use to uh, monitor the growth of these communities. There was a list of um, different groups um, and these are only the verified pages that we developed for this report. And we saw a growth of well over a million from March as the lockdown was talked about to June, July, when the lockdown was in full swing. They've only been growing since then.
2: What's then a high-level view of how conspiracy theories spread in 2020?
1: The best way to um, talk about this would be with some kind of example. I mean, you mentioned in 2020, already QAnon looms large in this. There isn't a conspiracy theory around at the moment that they don't try to link under their narrative umbrella. Looking at something like the 5G coronavirus conspiracy that happened earlier this year in the UK is a good way of tracking this. Originally, it started out way earlier than 2020. You have the electromagnetic hypersensitivity fringe groups on um, Facebook, Twitter, all over the place. These are the people who claim to be allergic to electromagnetic waves. As the 5G rollout was becoming increasingly uh, newsworthy, things around uh, Huawei um, and the UK government and contracts were making the news. I know that honourable members have sought a commitment from the government to remove Huawei equipment from our 5G network altogether. This group started flagging the dangers of 5G in terms of electromagnetic hypersensitivity, the idea that this is a different kind of communication, a different kind of wave. And this got hooked into coronavirus via um, an outfit called London Real, who fielded a couple of uh, high-level interviews with David Icke, who started talking about 5G and coronavirus in the same narrative there. On the point about the 5G martens, thank you again for mentioning. The story somehow got about that uh, uh, they play a role in the the, the spread of the disease. Uh, That's just nonsense, dangerous nonsense as well. There was a weird feedback loop of people reporting on people believing this, which then gave it more press coverage, which made more people believe in it, which is always a danger in how we report on disinformation. And it then got linked to the Bill Gates side of things, the fact that you know people believe there are going to be microchips in vaccines, which then got hooked up by QAnon, who started talking about things about the Great Reset, um, New World Order. And from there, you can see how one specific group and their their worry about 5g how their beliefs and worries can be co-opted by other conspiracies and feed into those to become a bigger and bigger narrative it's almost it's almost like improv it's a yes and in every situation
0: alex i'm really interested in how what would usually be considered a really extreme conspiracy theory so things like the idea that vaccines contain computer chips to monitor us all, which they don't, I should very clearly say, they've been able to kind of get out to so many people. I mean, if I was looking for information about the vaccine, how would I even come across this kind of thing? A lot of this comes
2: not from people looking for information, but from that information being sort of Shared passively to them. If you are on WhatsApp, you will have received endless forwarded, 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 uh, wild clips. That's very different from a normal media environment, where at least for most people, you're, you're getting a lot of your information from broadcast media, from you know websites that have a bylined writer and a, a consistent page. Something that's forwarded to you on WhatsApp. The provenance of it is impossible to check. On top of that, when people did search for things, this information void meant that there were no responses from many uh, websites, from many credible news organizations to their query. And that meant, again, that the only responses were from places that were playing fast and loose with the truth.
0: What about the role of celebrities? Do they have a, a role to play in all of this?
2: One of my favorite things that uh, someone who works in fact-checking has told me during this pandemic was that he attributed uh, quite a lot of the early rise in misinformation to the fact that uniquely, a huge swath of celebrities were just like everyone else, un- or underemployed, sitting alone in their rooms, spending an awful lot of time on social media. And that meant that, whereas at least with normal misinformation, you know, professional celebrities tended not to share huge swathes of political misinformation during the run up to the election because they had better things to do. Um, In the pandemic, that wasn't the case. And so you had some quite famous people scrolling through Instagram, finding a scary looking video about vaccine side effects and sharing it going, hmm, lots to think about here. And, you know, Maybe that wouldn't have happened if films were still being shot or sports matches were still being played or concerts were still happening. But it's not all uh, pre-existing celebrities. You know, this is the other thing. Again, in a world where people are desperately trying to find any information they can about COVID, and in a world where, again, I keep coming back to it this term, information voids existed, what that meant is people who were prepared to effectively post incessantly about COVID anyway, rapidly became sort of micro-influencers. People with tens of thousands of followers or maybe hundreds of thousands of followers on social networks, not enough by any means to call you a celebrity, but enough to mean that you had a vast amount of influence amongst your relatively large group of followers. And these micro-influencers, of course, quite frequently had no scientific credentials, came at this with a very strong prior opinion about the efficacy of vaccines or the danger of 5G. And they've been one of the biggest groups of people who it's quite hard to crack down on. There is not really any ability to apply moderate pressure to someone who has gone from 50 followers to 500,000 followers on social media. They don't have an agent. They don't have a business. They don't have advertisers who can drop them. All they have is this following built entirely off the back of the misinformation that they peddle. There's also, though, this weird thing with misinformation where it often becomes localised to the specific area. You can sort of think of this right as a uh, Dawkinsian meme in action. The version of misinformation that is most likely to spread in any given area will spread. small changes made either deliberately or accidentally, again, the change that makes it most compelling helps it effectively evolve to better suit its local environment. That means in the US, where you have a lot of fears of for-profit healthcare, anti-vaccination often takes the form of looking at who wins, who benefits financially from it. Whereas in Africa, where you've had, you know, Bill Gates being directly involved in a lot of the campaigns there, he gets specifically named as as a sort of more malicious entity. It's not about profit; it's about him specifically trying to do other things to harm the African continent. In the UK, meanwhile, a lot of those fears get tweaked again to become about the NHS or to become about the Conservative Party.
0: Alex, it seems that quite a lot of people have been sucked into sort of conspiracy theory holes in various different ways. How hard is it to get out of them? I mean, once you've sort of bought into this, is it something where it's then you know really difficult to change the mindset? I mean, presumably you have to want to change your mindset as well.
2: Speaking from the perspective of someone who might watch their friends falling down this rabbit hole—friends or family members—it it can be very hard to get someone out. It's certainly far easier to to head them off at the pass to stop them putting that first foot in the rabbit hole, or if you see them having curiosity. to to intervene then. Once someone is right in the the depths of this almost alternative reality, right? It's very, very, very hard to pull them out of it. I asked Joe about it. And one thing he said that stuck with me is confronting people head on about this just doesn't work. And so if people do end up in a Christmas bubble or on a family Zoom call with someone sharing anti-vax sentiment, what would your advice be?
1: The first thing I would say is is certainly not to argue um you, you can't meet them full force with the facts and uh with with the mainstream narrative because you you're, you're on a you're on a collision course to ruin your Christmas there essentially I think the best thing to do is to listen to them and ask them why they believe that and then to start challenging them in a constructive way. I think it's clear at this stage that a didactic approach towards disinformation, um, especially once that disinformation is set in, isn't the most effective way to combat it. Instead, it is this idea that we should allow these people to start questioning their beliefs as they originally had questioned them when they started believing this stuff in the first place looking at the way these communities behave I do think there is a way to bring people back and it does come from the, the idea of allowing these people and equipping them with a mindset that where they can turn that skepticism around messaging inwards a bit more and towards the communities that they are believing through confirmation bias and through this idea of self-research which is usually watching youtube videos however as people travel further and further into the extremes they're met by more and more militant but welcoming communities that um, are more than happy to feed this confirmation bias um, with more and more extreme messaging.
0: So yeah, Alex, uh, are you looking forward to getting... COVID vaccine.
2: Extremely excited, yes. Although unfortunately, as a healthy 31-year-old with no comorbidities, I think I might be waiting quite some time until it's my turn.
0: Alex, thank you for joining me this week, and thanks too to Joe Ondrak. That's it from us this week. If you have any questions or comments, do email scienceweekly at theguardian.com. And finally, happy Christmas from all of us here on the podcast. Stay safe and see you again on Tuesday, where we'll be starting off on the first part of our review of the year. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com podcasts.